Well, the, uh, the scripture for this afternoon is Psalm 2. So we're continuing to work our way through. Uh, Psalm 2, that's on page 552 on the, in the Pew Bible. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's word. This is Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're, uh, we're continuing to work our way through the, through the Psalms, and we come to Psalm 2, which is a, a wonderful psalm about uh, ultimately the kingship of Christ and his rule over the nations and the obligation of, of nations uh, to submit to Christ and to, and to his rule and to, to govern in ways that are pleasing to him. And so it has direct application uh, to, to the nations of the world uh, who, who largely uh, presently are, are, are failing to do this and uh, th- for the accountability that uh, nations and rulers face uh, by re- rebelling against uh, God's anointed king. And so let's, uh, let's see that uh, as we work our way through we begin first with the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3. Psalm 2 does not have a superscription to tell us the name of the human author, but in Acts 4, verse 25, Peter tells us that David indeed wrote this psalm. It is categorized as a royal psalm, and the royal psalms in the Psalter focus on the king of Israel and were often composed in connection with some event in the king's life or rule. And uh, uh, they, are, they are often uh, messianic as they point to the ultimate human king over Israel and all nations that is the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. In this psalm, uh, David not only reflects on the Lord's promises to him concerning his kingship and all of the kings that would follow, uh, but also looks forward to one particular a promised descendant, his greater son, Jesus Christ, and his rule over not just Israel, but all nations. David reflects on God's promise that was given in 2 Samuel 7, that he would eventually produce a son who would, by God's grace and power, rule over all nations. In the psalm, the rebellion of kings and nations against the Lord God and against the, the Messiah are shown to be foolish and useless. Judgment is promised, but 
It is also, uh, a refuge is also offered to those who would turn to him in faith and repentance. And it does not have to end in judgment. It is better by far in the, in the presentation of the psalm to repent and submit and be saved and to govern in ways that are pleasing to the king, the Messiah, than to be rebellious and defeated and condemned. And so we begin with verses 1 through 3, which tell us of the rebellion of the nations and the peoples and the kings uh, of the world against the Lord God and against his anointed Messiah. Now verse 1 tell, or rather asks a rhetorical question, and it wonders why the nations are in an uproar and why they devise a vain thing against the Lord. And uh, it's uh, the, 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 uh, the question is offered because it is foolish. Uh, the, the question is asked because why, why are they doing this when they have no chance of success? Why in their anger and in their agitation against the Lord uh, do they rail against him? Because they are doomed to fail. It is vain for them to do this. In other words, it is empty and useless. Uh, David writes of, of Gentile tribes and nations surrounding Israel as they oppose the Lord God and Israel's anointed king in the original setting would be David himself and Solomon and others who would follow. That though they, like the Philistines and, and others, would threaten and plot and rise up against the Lord, they will fail. Verse 2 adds that these foreign and pagan kings and rulers of the earth also stand against the Lord's anointed. Now, anointing in the Old Testament is the practice of pouring oil on the head of a man as, as a sign of God setting him apart to serve in some office. And so priests and kings, for example, were anointed. David himself was anointed as king by the prophet Nathan before he became, or Samuel rather, before he became king. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, we're told, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Uh, David had been anointed and installed as Israel's king by the Lord's doing. God had established his anointed king. And so it is rebellious and foolish for people to oppose God himself, and that's what they're doing when they oppose his anointed king. Instead, the nations are to respect and honor David as Israel's king. But David also speaks here prophetically of, of his descendants, and especially that one descendant who would come from him, the Messiah, and his rule is not to be opposed. He will follow after David, and he will reign forever. The Lord promised David in 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13, and 16, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in the short term, that was partially fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. But it is ultimately and most fully fulfilled in the promise of the ultimate king from David's line, the Messiah of Jesus Christ. 
As the angel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And as we noted at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 1 and 1, Matthew writes the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 3 tells us of the rebellion of the nations as they resist and break away from their required submission to the Messiah. Now these uh, words, fetters, fetters and cords, uh, refer to the, the shackles or restraints that were placed either on prisoners or on the ropes that tie an animal to a yoke or a plow. And so the yoke or the restraint of the rule of, of the Lord God and the Messiah are not just rejected, but they are violently torn apart and thrown off. That the nations reject God, the kings and rulers reject God, and they reject Jesus Christ. And so they have that in common, and they, and they work against him and resist his rule. And yet, uh, Jesus is still king, even though some under him rebel. We're reminded in Daniel 7, and uh, we'll get into this more in a moment. To the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Jesus rules and reigns as Messiah and king over the nations. But even yet, there are some who are under rebellion. And yet, uh, this is a call to them to repent and to turn to him. So second, uh, the Lord has installed the Messiah in verses 4 through 6. And here we're told of the Lord's reaction to the rebellion of the nations against him and the anointed one, the Messiah. And the nations may appear to be powerful, but they are nothing compared to God. And their rebellion is absolutely no threat to him or his rule or his plan. Verse 4 says that the Lord who sits in his, on his throne in heaven laughs in scorn at the, at the lame and futile attempts of rebellion of the nations. That he scoffs at them because he knows that his sovereignty and his power and his plan are over all. In verse 5, the Lord speaks to them in anger and terrifies them in his fury and says in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God has decreed the kingship of David and his dynasty, and the opposition of the world does not alter the fact of the rule of the Davidic king established by God. This was true as David faced opposition from the Philistines and even his own son. And, and yet he was still king. And his kingship was preserved by the Lord. And ultimately we see this fulfilled in the promises of a son who would rule forever. Uh, and they are fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. One of the many promises of that Messiah is given in Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So Jesus Christ is king, no matter what the nations say. He is sovereign over all, and he is accomplishing his purposes, even in the rebellion of the nations. And his kingdom will grow and extend, and it will cover the earth as men and nations are brought to salvation. Jesus proclaims in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so the the nations that are in rebellion uh, will be brought into submission in God's eventual plan. David is king, we notice here in our verse, uh, from Zion. Now Zion is the hill upon which the temple and David's palace were located. That is where God dwelt in glory among his people in the temple. And the assurance of victory over God's enemies by the anointed king is, is established and sure. And as we uh, notice here that it's mentioned that he rules from Zion. And Zion represents in the New Testament the church, where we're reminded of the sure victory of God's kingdom as the gospel spreads over the world that... that uh, He will rule from the church, and the church will grow and extend. Revelation 5 says of Jesus, You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so there is the promise of the triumph of the kingdom of God. Third, the Lord has decreed the Messiah's dominion in verses 7 and 8. The decree deals with the Davidic king and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. And the covenant promises of God to David include extension of the kingdom to cover the earth. The declaration of verse 7 is that David is a son of the Lord God. Uh, William Van Gemmeren writes, This relationship is confirmed at the moment of coronation. Therefore, the king must respond to the interests of his father and represent the will of God to his people. And so, while originally applying to David and then the kings that would follow, uh, this uh, speaks of their responsibility to rule in, 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 the, uh, in the light of the lordship of their heavenly father. But it is ultimately fulfilled in David's greater son, uh, Jesus Christ. At Jesus' baptism, God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the Father's voice speaks from heaven words that echo our verse 7. In Mark 1 and 11, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And this marks the start of Jesus' public ministry as he's anointed with God the Holy Spirit to serve as prophet, priest, and king. At the transfiguration, the Father's voice is heard out of the cloud, and Jesus is shown in his glory. And God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's in Mark 9 and 7. He is the unique and eternal Son of the Father and the ultimate prophet, the very Word of God. Jesus is the anointed King, the unique Son of God, 
the second person of the Godhead, who rules and reigns from the throne of David as the God-man, the Son of God and the Son of David. In verses 8 and 9, we're told that David's greater son, the Anointed One, would come to rule the nations. The Gentile nations will be, uh, will be given at the Messiah's request, notice, by God the Father as his inheritance and, and possession, uh, terms used in the Old Testament to refer to God's covenant people. And so all the nations will be brought into the kingdom. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. In Isaiah 49 and 6, the Father says to the Son, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. Verse 9 shows that the Messiah will, at times, use force to crush the opposition to his rule. The iron rod noted here is his scepter, and a king's scepter is, is a symbol of his rule and authority. And this verse is, is echoed in, in Revelation 19, 15 and 16, which speak of Christ. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of his fierce, the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he, is, he, he can and will smash them uh, as he sees fit, and he can do that with ease. Notice that it's compared to shattering a clay pot, which is not easy, or it's not hard to do, rather. This verse reminds us of the power of Jesus Christ over wicked nations, those who harm his people and rebel against him, that he has the means to subdue them. He also has the means to crush them. And the rise and fall of nations is is uh, purposed by Jesus Christ and for, for his reasons. And those nations that rebel against him are liable and due to his wrath. We're reminded of Jesus' power over the, the nations in Ephesians 1. God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church. And this uh, gives us comfort because we know that Jesus Christ is sovereign. It should also strike fear in the hearts of nations and rulers and peoples that are in rebellion against him. Now, he may permit it for a time, but he brings judgment on the nations. And he calls them to repent and to seek his face. And so forth and finally, the kings of the earth warned and called to serve the Messiah in 10 through 12. In light of his rule and power, the kings and judges of the earth, the rulers of the nations, are both warned of the danger of rebellion and are called to worship the Lord, the one true God, and rejoice with trembling 
That is to, to operate with fearful awe of God and to do homage to the Son, the reigning King and Messiah. If they persist in rebellion, they will fall under his wrath. But his mercy is also offered here that if they will worship the Lord God and submit to the Son's rule, then the Lord will be a refuge for them. Uh, the words uh, translated show homage are literally kiss in the Hebrew, and that's reflected in the, the language of the Red Psalter. And that refers to a demonstration of, of submission to take hold of the offer of, of blessing and refuge found in him. It is so much better to have Jesus as Savior than to have Jesus as judge. Reminded here of the words in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so here is the offer of, of salvation to kings and judges and nations and a warning of Christ's wrath on those who reject him. Sadly, we don't see much recognition of this in leaders in our nation, or for that matter, the leaders of the nations of the world. Now, they often deliberately disregard God, or maybe if they're in certain nations, they play lip service uh, to service of God. They do, do not widely, apparently, know salvation in Jesus Christ. And so this is a warning to them. And it is a, a reminder of how much better the world would be if, and how much better our country would be if they were served by civil magistrates who loved Jesus Christ and sought to serve him and how they serve the people. And so we are to be praying. We pray for the rule of the civil magistrate here and around the world, that they would govern in ways that are pleasing to God and according to his word, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord if they don't already, and that they would then govern in ways that reflect that. In a general sense, Paul encourages us to pray in 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so we pray for, for, um, for those in authority that they would govern in ways that keep the peace and allow us to live out our faith freely so that we can have quiet lives of, of dignity. And so we pray at least for that. But we also pray that they would heed the warning here in Psalm 2 and would turn to Christ and be saved personally and then govern in ways uh, that reflect that. And so let us be praying for our leaders, for their salvation, and for their governing, that they would know and kiss the Son rather than know his wrath. And in a general sense, uh, this passage is also for all people, not just rulers, that we all are under God's wrath for our sin, as we, as we saw this morning from Romans 1. And so there is a call here as well for all of us uh, to... to uh, to trust in Jesus Christ, repent in him, embrace him as he's shown in the gospel promises and know his salvation rather than his wrath. And I'll close with this, uh, this quote from Peter Holtlower, 
who writes, Alongside the dire warning here is a warm invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The all includes all the people. The warning is issued to urge their repentance before it is too late. Kiss the sun and receive life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. Uh, we do pray uh, for the nations and for the, the leaders of the nations, leaders in our nation. We pray that, that they would recognize the kingship of Christ over them personally, over all nations, and pray that they would, they would know his salvation and would trust and repent in Jesus Christ and would govern in ways that are pleasing to him. Uh, we pray for our own nation that we would, uh, in our wickedness, for not fall under your wrath, but that we, you would have mercy on us. Uh, we pray the same for, uh, for uh, other nations in which, uh, which, which are in rebellion against you. We pray that uh, in your ultimate plan, you would cause the rise and fall of nations uh, that, in a way that would advance your kingdom and be good for your, ch your church. And so we ask these things that you would do them. And we, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.